Wow, it's nice to see a, th new, a few new faces. We've got a reconstituted blue team here and happy to have you. And I do want to remind everybody, like we are thankful for those guys up in the balcony doing their job week to week. Every one of us have a mission that God's called us to. Something in the course of our week where we live out the kingdom of God in a way that proclaims who he is. And uh, one of the things as a church we want to do is nurture that in you and help you find that. And so that's, thank you guys for sharing and... Um, I encourage all of you to look for that. We are in 2 Samuel chapter 11 today. We've been going through the season of foundations, looking at the problems with kings. And, and we're focusing in today and next week on David. Now, David is the brightest light of all the kings of Israel. He's the one that everybody holds up as the good king, right? Uh, if you're Canadian, you probably hold up somebody like Tommy Douglas, Right? Tommy Douglas is the, the, the example we think of a good leader who, who made change, who worked hard. And the states, they would hold up Abe Lincoln, right? That, that's kind of David in Jewish history. He's this pair of leadership. Too. But today, and you know this story, we see the dark side. A story that we most likely would have left out if we were writing out Jewish history ourselves. We would have forgotten this one. We would have left it on the cutting room floor and not shared it. It's a tremendously well-known story. It's one that for you parents of small children, I apologize for the conversations that will ensue out of this, but uh, I'm just reading the Bible to you. That's what I do. So um, it's been a while since our last text. And chronologically, uh, David's become even more established as king. His army is strong. His enemies are weakened. And a time of year comes, the spring, when kings go out with their armies to kind of solidify their borders, to make sure that their enemies are in subjection, to, to reinforce what's going on there. But David stays home in our text. And in the downtime of a king who has no threats to his power, we see David walk down this path that's going to hurt him and his family for the rest of his life and beyond. So we're going to work our way through chapters 11 and part of chapter 12, but we're going to start first with just chapter 11, verses 1 to 27. I'll read it right now. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army, and they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. And one evening, David got up from his bed and walked on the roof of the palace. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. And the man said, Isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And then David sent messengers to get her, and she came to him, and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanness. And then she went back home, and the woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was, how the soldiers were, how the war was going. And then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his own house. And when David was told Uriah did not go home, he asked him, haven't you just come from a distance? Why didn't you go home? And Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. And my master Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open fields. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. 
And then David said to him, Stay here one more day. Tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And at David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat, arrived among his master's servants, and he did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. And in it, he wrote, Put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. And when the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. And Joab sent David a full account of the battle, and he instructed the messenger, When you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up, and he may ask you, Why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerobesheth? Didn't a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, Also your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. The messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. And the messenger said to David, The men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance to the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. And David told the messenger, Say this to Joab, Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. And when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. And after the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Sounds more like a movie plot or a soap opera script than the story of the king of the people of God. And, and what I want you to see is that this story I just read really interacts with two others that are text references and also interacts with our own story. We're going to come back to that at the end. But I want to start with what I just read, which I call the actual story. And when you see the actual story, you see it highlights a contrast. The actual story highlights a contrast. It's one of the most tragic personal stories, I think, of the Old Testament. This, this person that's put on this pedestal falls to such a low place. David, the beloved king, makes mistake after mistake with what appears to be absolutely no remorse at all. It's hard to watch, especially as Uriah does everything right and still suffers. See, the theme you can't miss as you read it highlights this contrast. First thing we see is the corruption of the powerful. David's the most powerful guy around. He's the king. God has told him his throne will endure forever. He's brought the Ark of the Covenant to the capital city. He has subdued his enemies, it's said in the text, with the help of God. And he's powerful. But with power always comes this temptation to corruption. He made choices, choices that only a man with his power could actually make. First, he saw Bathsheba bathing in verse 2. He could have stopped right there. But no, he had the power to send someone to find out who she was. He had the power to do that. And when he found out who she was in verse 4, he found out her father's name and her husband's name. He knows the full story. He could have stopped right there, right? He had the power to find out that information and then stop, but he didn't. It says he sent for her. He sent for her because he had the power as the king to require people to report to him. And, and she came and, and he slept with her. Once again, a choice he made 
it really should turn your stomachs to read this because what's happened is there is no sense that she consents to this in the text. There is no sense that she thinks, oh boy, the king. There's nothing of that in the text. You see a man of power who cannot be denied taking advantage of a woman who has to obey the word of the king. Then she becomes pregnant. She sends a message to the king. Once again, the one in power has a choice when he hears this and and he chooses poorly. First, he attempts a cover-up. Let's bring Uriah home, right? Let's bring him home and then he'll go down to his house and you know what will happen and it'll all be, nobody will ever know the difference except for me and Bathsheba. Well, Uriah doesn't go. So David goes a little bit deeper, calls Uriah in and gets him drunk. Right? Well, that's, this is really, he's just looking better and better as the time goes on. And he still doesn't go back to his house. In verse 15, get this, he sends a letter to Joab instructing him to make sure Uriah dies. And he sends the letter with Uriah back to the battle. Here, take this to Joab. Jo- and Uriah walks all the way back to the battle carrying the letter that's going to mean his own death. And Uriah is killed in battle. See, David had the power to do those things. He also had the power not to do them. But he didn't stop. You see, power is this strong drug. (laughs) And it makes us feel invincible. Uh, Some of you know I I get to vote twice this month. I vote in the U.S. and I vote in Canada. And I'm researching my candidates in North Carolina, the state where I vote. And I'm looking at the two people running for state senator, for senator, that, that goes from the state to Washington. And um, as I'm researching them, a news story breaks on one of them. And this is, you know, a month before the election. And it turns out that he's been um, sending text messages to his mistress that are quite descriptive. And my first response is, you're running for senator. The media is looking at your whole life. Everybody's, your opponent is out to find dirt on you. And somehow you still think you can have an affair and text your mistress and it not come out. But, but power blinds people. It makes them feel invincible. And see, this, this story is played out over and over and over in our culture today. The power, the powerful use their power to get what they want. Even if it means it has to happen in corrupt ways. Now, the contrast between David is Uriah the Hittite, right? The integrity of the weak counterbalances the corruption of the powerful. Uriah comes home supposedly to report to David. He goes, he updates David. And David says in verse 8, go down to your house and wash. Make yourself comfortable. Wash your feet. Tuck in. You've earned it. Thanks for bringing the message. But, but he didn't go home, did he? He slept at the gate with his master's servants. And we know his home was close because David had seen from his rooftop from the palace. It was just there. It was right there in the neighborhood. He didn't go home. He says, the ark and Israel and Judah are all staying in tents. And my master Joab and the Lord's men are camped in the open fields. How can I go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. The weakest man in the story has incredible integrity and loyalty. So David gets Uriah drunk and even then he refuses to go home. Uriah was the one with no power. The king called him and he had to come. The king sent him back and he had to go, even taking a message that was going to decree his own death. Uriah had no power, but he had incredible integrity. 
In this, in this actual story, you just see the two poles, polar opposites there. It's drawn a picture. And then comes a second story in chapter 12, verses 1 to 7. The Lord sent Nathan to David. Now, Nathan is the prophet. And when he came to him, he said, he launches into this second story. There were two men in a certain town, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. And David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. And then he continues from there. See, Nathan the prophet tells the king a story and the prophet's story brings clarity. I, I, I can only imagine Nathan going in. <laughs> How do I tell David what he's done? Right? Nathan could die. You got to get this. This is the most powerful man in the land. And so... He wisely uses this story to illustrate and bring to life what's been going on in David's life. And sometimes, you know, a story can sneak past our defenses, kind of grabs us emotionally. And then somebody twists it at the end and we see ourselves in the story. Well, this is one of those times. His story works brilliantly and reminds us of two things. Once again, two things about this story. First, it's easy to see the faults of others. It's really easy. David's outraged by the actions of the rich man. He cannot believe a guy would do this. And I bet even as he heard the story, his, his mind's going back to those nights. He, he was on the side of the hill with the sheep. He probably had his favorite lambs, right? Just love these little guys. And it, it, it engages him emotionally. And when he hears the story of the rich man taking the poor man's one sheep and killing it, it says in verse 5, he burned with anger against the man. It's so obvious to him how evil this was. <laughs> Did you notice what he said too? As surely as the Lord lives, he brought God into it. Isn't that funny? He, he's, he's done this, but he can see the other guy's fault so clearly that he says, as surely as the Lord lives, this guy has to die. He should pay four times over because he did this and had no pity. See, it wasn't just that act of selfishness that bugged him. It was no compassion and no pity for somebody who was poor. David sees very clearly the consequences of, of Nathan's story. You know, we do that too, right? How, how easy is it for us to see <laughs> the faults of other people? And don't raise your hand on this, but I'm going to ask you a question. Don't raise your hand. You can if you want to, if you really want to be confession. How many of you this week have talked about the faults of another person that they're not aware of in a conversation. See why I said don't raise your hand? Right? How many, and maybe it's a politician you've talked about. Who knows who it might be that you've talked about. But it's easy for us to see the faults of other people. We have a superpower of being able to see why can't they see what they're doing? Why won't they change their behavior? It's easy to see the faults of others, but this story reminds us of a second thing too. It's easy to forget our own. David's been, been able to completely disregard his, his own actions from the first story. What he did 
was so much worse than what this fictional rich man did. But he was able to look himself in the mirror every day. He was able to summon the name of the Lord in his condemnation of this rich man. And he didn't even get that the story was about him until Nathan told him. You see, he was the king. And one of the king's job was to make sure that the laws of the land were upheld. In Exodus 21, 12, anyone who kills a man shall be put to death. That's one of the laws David was supposed to enforce. Another one, Leviticus 20, 10, if a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, who maybe he, this is not in the text, but who maybe he could see from the roof, that's how, you know, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. David is supposed to be the one making sure that the law is being upheld. And yet he goes on, even through this story, oblivious to his own guilt. You know, you can start to see the application from these two, you know, that we can see the faults of others, but we miss our own. I'll, I'll get to that at the end. I want to go. There's one more story. If you look at 12, chapter 12, verses 7 to 10. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. And now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. See, there's the actual story of what happened. There's Nathan's story that, that illustrates David's guilt. And then there's always the bigger story. Remember last week we talked about the bigger story? We, we, we need to keep looking at the bigger story that we're living in in order to keep focused, David loses perspective in the bigger story again and pays for it clearly. As I read the text, you had to be thinking, we've heard this before. Last week in, in chapter um, 7 of Second Samuel, remember what God said, Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord God Almighty says. I took you from the pasture. And from following the flock to be the ruler over my people. I've been with you wherever you've gone. And I've cut off your enemies from before you. And now I will make your name great. Like the names of the greatest men of the earth. Remember last week we talked about God reorienting David to that bigger story. He's doing it again. David, I did all these things for you, he says. And then that question in verse 9. After I've done all this for you, why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes. And then you get this, right? He says in there, you struck him down with the sword. You killed him, David, with the sword. With the sword of the Ammonites. And then he says, now therefore the sword will never depart from your house. David, you've done something that started a chain of events in your own house. You see, the larger story is given to David to remember that actions have consequences. Because David's wielded his power corruptly, the, the sword is going to become a part of his household from now on. And if you read David's story, you'll see it's true. You'll hear that next week from Jake. From this point on, there's a con continually, there's heartache, division, there's death in his family until the day he dies and even after. And there's two angles to look at this, right? One, one is saying, okay, God is directly punishing David for his sin. We know that the child that Bathsheba was pregnant with dies. That's a direct punishment from God. It's a hard consequence. But the other 
And what I think we forget is that David's actions set in motion events that flow out of his own twisted character. Right? He, he's, he's become the kind of person that uses the sword to get what he wants. And when you become that kind of person, the people around you, your family, those who follow after you, those who are living with you, begin to adopt the same things. It's, it's, a, it's a, a, the starting of a, a flow or a pattern that's going to wreak havoc in his life. Genesis, or Galatians 6, 7, and 8 says, Don't be deceived. God can't be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature will from that nature reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will will reap eternal life. So there is this idea of God's punished, direct punishment, but there's also this idea that our character causes things to happen. Actions have consequences. Our sin opens the door to more devastation in our own lives and the lives of those that we love. It's not something that we need to deny or gloss over, but I also want you to see in this story, grace comes to us as we are. Remember, David was so angry with the rich man in verses 5 and 6. He had no mercy, no grace for him at all. And then if you look down in verse 13 and 14 of chapter 12, then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this you've made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt, the son born to you will die. See, the Old Testament law said David should die for killing Uriah. It also said that David and Bathsheba should both die because of the adultery. But God says, no, I'm going to offer grace. You will not die, David. The Lord has taken away your sin. Even in this situation, there's grace. Now David's family goes downhill from here on. It's a sad glimpse into the failure of Israel's most beloved king, but there is still grace even in that failure. That's why it's important for us to close by seeing ourselves in David's story. What are the takeaways in a sad story like this? How can it speak into our lives today? And I know I always refer to Romans 15.4, but it's, it, Romans 15.4 gives me an anchor as I'm reading the Old Testament. It says, For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us. So that through the endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So what is it in this story of David, these three stories that intertwine, that speaks to us right where we are today? And I, I, it might surprise you. I see three here, three. I'm a Baptist pastor. I always have to have, I come in threes, right? It's based on the Trinity. We think that that's part of us. Anyway, three things I see. Number one, beware the temptation of or to power. Beware the temptation of power or to power. It's so subtle, the temptation of power. We can slide into thinking that all we need to rectify the situation, to make it better, is just a little more power and control in this situation. If I could just get them to do this, it would all be better. I just need a little power. If I just had the strength or if I had a strong ally, somebody that could come and help me, I could fix this situation. This temptation to power is especially relevant in an election season, right? And I, I mean, we think you should vote. We need to speak as, as citizens of Canada and me as a citizen of both Canada and the U.S. You need to vote. We need to speak out what we think and we need to make a decision there. But we don't need to get sucked in to think that power is the way to fix the world. We far too easily tie our hopes to power and to legislation 
and to political allies. Let me ask you this, and this is an honest question. I'm not being cheeky. But if getting the right person in office or passing the right law is the way to fix the world, why didn't Jesus think of that? Jesus must be thinking, oh, man, I should have just taken over. I let him crucify me instead. That, Jesus did not try to fix. He didn't try to legislate his way to changing people's hearts. He didn't try to become the Caesar. He was already the king, and he showed us a very different way to interact with power. And we've always been tempted to and tempted by power. It's, the, it's literally the oldest story in the book, Genesis 3, 5. For God knows, Satan says, the serpent says, that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He says to, to Eve, you know what? It, it's power. You, you want to be like God. That'll fix the situation. You should just take this. And you know, God knew. He knows that about it. He knows that power is hard for us to hold. Right? I think of the Lord of the Ring, right? Lord of the Rings and that ring, that, that, uh, the ring of power that when you have it, it actually begins to twist you. If you're not, you have to let it go. Moses, some of you may not realize this, but before they ever went into the promised land, God already knew that they were going to ask for a king. Moses, it's a long section. I'm going to read it to you from uh, Deuteronomy 17. Moses is speaking to the people before they've even gone into the promised land. He says, when you enter the land, the Lord your God has given you and taken possession of it and settled in it. And you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us. Right? They were going to say that. They hadn't said it yet. This is God's advice. Be sure to appoint over you the king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your own brothers. Do not place a foreigner over you who is not a brother Israelite. The king, moreover, just listen to the requirements for a king. Must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself, power. Or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives, or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself, write for himself on a scroll, a copy of the law taken from that of the priests who are the Levites. And it is to be with him. And he is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and the, these decrees and not consider himself better than his brothers or turn from the law to the right or to the left. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. God said way back before they even went in the promised land, power is this hard thing to hold. There's some things. Don't get horses. Don't get money. Don't expand your political alliances through multiple wives. In fact, what you need to do is write down the law, write your own personal copy and keep it with you all the time. Because power is so seductive. In that book, Screwtape Letters, some of you may have read that. C.S. Lewis writes a fictional story. Uh, there's, there's Uncle Screwtape who is in the bureaucracy of, of the, the demon world, and he's writing to his nephew Wormwood on how to tempt this person that Wormwood is supposed to lead away from the faith. And there's a section where he talks about power, and he, he's actually talking about patriotism and pacifism both. That either one of those can be twisted. For the gospel, but this is what he says. Let him begin. This is what he says. If, he want, if you want to tempt your person, let him begin by treating patriotism as a part of his religion. Then let him, under the influence of partisan spirit, come to regard it as the most important part. And then quietly and gradually nurse him on to the stage at which the religion becomes merely a part of the cause 
in which Christianity is valued chiefly because of the excellent arguments it can produce. And once he's made the world an end and faith a means, you have almost won your man. And it makes very little difference what kind of worldly end he is pursuing. Once you tell him power is the way to go and he embraces it, he loses the very heart of the faith. We have to be careful. You know, Jesus was tempted by power as well. You know, Matthew 4. Again, the devil took him to a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you'll bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it's written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. See, Jesus didn't consider equality God with, with, with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the very form and nature of servant. Power is, we have to beware the temptations of power. Now, the second one is this, focus on planks before specks. Remember the words of Jesus in, the, in Matthew 7, 5. You hypocrite, take the plank out of your own eye, then you'll be see clearly to remove the speck in your brother's eye. Can we all just confess something? We are quick, maybe, maybe you know it, but we are quick to judge the actions of others. We are quick to criticize. We're quick to find the fault in what other people do. What if we stopped that? What if we just laid it down? What if for the next six months, we just stopped worrying about what everyone else is doing? And morning, noon, and night, we prayed the words of Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there's any offensive way in me. And then lead me in the way everlasting. Can you imagine if every Christian in hope over the next six months stopped being worried about what everybody else was doing. Stop focusing on specks in other people's eyes and allow God to dig out the planks out of our own. <laughs> the biggest temptation in that time is you're going to think, look at me, I'm doing this, I'm not worried about anybody else. They're all so prideful, you know, they all worry about, but not me, I'm not. that'll be the temptation. But can you imagine the difference? Think of how it would reorient us to the larger story. The constant thing in our mind would be, oh God, I need your grace for this plank. That would be your first motive, your first thought. And how that might bring renewal in a community. I can't even imagine if for six months we just stopped worrying about the faults of others and said, search me, oh God, search me. See, focusing on our planks orients us to the bigger story. The, la the last thing, the freedom to orient yourself to the bigger story comes from this last realization. And that is, sin destroys, but grace will win. Sin destroys, but grace will win. The intertwining of these stories says both those things loud and clear. First, sin has repercussions. It will destroy. You know, Peter, this disciple that repeatedly messed up, if you read Peter, Peter knew what it was to make mistakes. And in 1 Peter 2.11, he says, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world... Abstain from sinful desires, which do what? They wage war against your soul. Sin, will, sin seeks to destroy you. He says later on in 1 Peter 5, 8, Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Sin destroys. And yet we see in the story that God offers grace in the middle of that. Paul writes in Romans 5, the law was added so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I don't want you to lose the grace aspect, but I also don't want you to lose the sin aspect. 
that sin will destroy and grace will win. See, God's not messed up by our sin. Paul even said, Paul's talking to him about this thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians 12, and, he, and God says to him, my grace is sufficient for you. I've got enough grace to cover this. But I also don't want you to, to lose the fact that sin destroys, because sometimes we can think, oh, grace covers it all, so we don't even worry about sin. We don't even take it seriously. And it, it sets in motion patterns and, and consequences that harm ourselves and that harm our families when we don't take sin seriously. So I want you to hear that. Sin destroys and grace wins. Both of those are true. I, I, I was trying to think of a good way to, uh, to um, illustrate that. And here's the illustration I came up with, and you can tell me if it's good or not. Uh, I've got a hand here, my left hand. And um, sometimes it hurts. I've got you know, some pain in my fingers at times. And, and it's, it's a real pain because my fingernails get dirty and I have to clean them. And, um, you know, sometimes I, I, it reminds me of my faults because I, I bite my fingernails. I'm one of those guys. And I always feel guilty when I do it because you're not supposed to do that. It's not a good hygienic thing. So what I've decided, this, this left hand is just more trouble than it's worth. It really is. It would be way easier. And, and as a Christian, guess what? I think me and you, we both believe I'm going to get a new body. I'm going to get a new one. Anybody believe that? We're going to get a brand new one. A glorified body that can never be sick or die. So why wouldn't I just take my hand and go, kaboom? Why wouldn't I do that? Right? Why wouldn't I just take that hand and throw it away? <laughs> do you see that? <laughs> now the reality is, that's stupid. Who would do that? Right? Why would I destroy this even though it's faulty? even though it doesn't work all the time the way I want it to, why would I destroy it just because I'm going to get a new one? And yet, sometimes that's how we treat sin. Oh, grace is going to cover it. I'm just going to let it go. Who cares? And we don't realize that sin actually destroys. It hurts other people. It hurts our family. It, 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 sin cultivates these patterns. Now, it doesn't mean that you need to just totally wallow in guilt because grace is going to cover that. But in the moment, you need to realize sin, if I play with it, it's still going to destroy parts of my life. It's going to hurt people around me, even though grace is going to cover it, even though God's grace is sufficient for me. I don't want to play with the sin. Bowing to temptations of power. Focusing on the sin of others while neglecting my own. These things start cycles of pain in our lives and in the lives of those around us. And yes, grace wins. Thank goodness, grace wins. But it doesn't mean we keep playing with those cycles. We pray, God, help me to walk away from that. Help me to turn away. Help me to let that resurrection life that you've given me enable me to turn from sin to grace, to receive what you've done for me. See, the call is to remember the greater story, the one who has given it all for us, the one who loves us and has called us his own. When you begin to taste that kind of love, grace, and acceptance, then sin becomes less and less appealing. Let's pray. God, what a story of David. What an embarrassing story. I'm sure we all have stories that we think, man, if that was written down for generations to read, I'd be so embarrassed by that. 
And we just want to thank you that grace wins in spite of our brokenness. We want to thank you that you have made a way for us to be completely forgiven, that you see us through the righteousness of Jesus as deeply loved, holy, blameless children of God. God, help us to live in that grace today and, and help that to give us wisdom as we face temptations, temptations of power, temptations of pride, as we, we, we struggle with focusing on the faults of others and ignoring our own. Help us to see your grace as a way that frees us to actually let you deal with what's going on in our own lives. And God, I pray that that would be transformational for us, that as you become the king of our life, as we surrender to your leadership, as you show us the places that we mess up, the places that we fail, and that your grace will cover that, that we could leave those behind. And in our relationships of others, we could love as we have been loved. We could forgive as we've been forgiven. We could offer grace as we've been offered grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I don't know if you caught it in there, but in our text today, God broke his own law. Did you catch that? The law says David should die, David and Bathsheba should die, and God says, you are not going to die. I have taken away. How can God break his own law? That seems like a little twist there. Well, the point is (laughs) that God could see the other side of the cross, too. He could see that the sacrifice was made for the breaking of the law and that that things were going... That's why we can see a story like David and the grace in it and be thankful. The Psalms, even Jake said, you know, sometimes we need to read the Psalms from Jesus' perspective instead of David. And that's true. I want you to realize the one thing that makes this prayer at the end of Psalm 139 possible is the cross. Because we've been forgiven, our David moments can, can flow to the top and we don't have to be afraid. I'd encourage you this week just to pray this. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. The cross says you can pray that without being afraid. That's good news. That's my prayer for you this week. Amen.